The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. sung of some marvelous things and we've prayed in our singing so I reiterate some of that now and ask you would you shine into our hearts Lord we just sang this please shine into our hearts cause us to see you cause us to see your goodness bind us to the cross where in particular we see your wisdom and power and your grace and your mercy and your justice all all meeting in marvelous ways to show us who you are and to show us how you feel about your glory and about your people. So Father, would you send the Spirit now in in great power into this place and cause him to shine into our hearts to give us the ability to see you. And in that, give us rest in you. I pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage today and the complexities in it and the seriousness in it, that you would, in in those of us who are yours, that you would grow in us a, a thanksgiving and a heart after yours, a heart like yours. And Lord, would you also cause this to rest well on those here and those who may hear this elsewhere who don't know you, Cause them to see you, draw them to you. Well, that's a a miracle when you do that, when you open the eyes of our hearts and cause us to see you. It is contrary to our nature as it is now. So would you please do that by your spirit's power? Open the eyes of our hearts. Give us sight, draw us and give us rest. You have made a way for peace. Draw us to that way. Show us the truth and bring us to life. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this and ask for your power on this moment. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 19. For some time now we've been following Jesus through the pages of this gospel last number of chapters we've been following him as he moves on towards Jerusalem and what awaits him there when we were last here in this chapter two weeks ago we had finally reached the city itself we'd seen him in his triumphal entry as he's riding down the Mount of Olives coming towards the city called triumphal entry because he is doing many symbolic things celebrating a victory there but a victory in humility a victory of peace as he's riding a donkey a young donkey, coming symbolically, coming, having already won and offering now peace to people. This is exactly like the Old Testament predicted would happen when God sent his great Messiah king to set up the kingdom. We looked back into the book of Zechariah and saw the prophecy there, and Jesus wanted his disciples and the the crowds there in that moment and, and all through history, including us today, wanted us to see 
the Old Testament prediction and to see Jesus and, and to connect the two and realize this is the king. This is the one foretold. Here he is. And so then to make that connection clear, Jesus acted sovereignly, orchestrated events to acquire that humble donkey, to, to approach the city in that humble manner so that all who looked on would see this is the king sent by God with salvation in his hand to offer peace. The words of the prophecy, the words the crowd sang out. And everybody sees this, and the massive crowds lining the streets there, they think they get the message. Jesus has come to give peace by destroying our enemy. Dot, dot, dot. Politically and militarily, there's the error. They got the first part right. They, they understand something of it. He has come to, to bring peace by destroying our enemy, but they especially have in mind that he's come to deal with Rome and all kinds of other material and physical problems, and they miss that all along he's been promising to deal with the real and true enemy, sin, and the judgment of God that sin brings and that sin deserves. That's the peace he promises, and, and the crowds cheer wildly in misunderstanding. They're using the right language, the right words, they're, they're connecting the right passages, they're understanding, but they're not understanding, they're missing it. It all looks marvelous. They are rejoicing with loud shouts of praise, and the crowd is delighted, mostly so. There are some Pharisees there and others who don't, who don't buy it. But the crowd is delighted, and it is a celebration. It is a mood of great joy. It's a triumphal entry. Until, unexpectedly, inexplicably, Jesus himself begins to weep. Probably still riding the donkey. Still amidst all the excited crowds, still with their robes laid out on the ground to keep even the, the hooves of the donkey from getting dirty. This is a sign of great honor they're showing to him. This great parade. Verse 41 says that he drew near and he saw the city. So this is not like later on, afterwards. This is in the moment. Right then, Jesus wept over the city. Which is a really odd way to respond to a celebration thrown in your honor. So what's going on here? We're going to consider this morning verses 41 to 44 and draw out two observations from it that look at the weeping and look at the why. And I'll come to that in a minute, but let me read the passage first, just these few verses, 41 to 44, and then we'll turn and make two observations from them. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Luke chapter 19. It's an odd juxtaposition. 
as we think about this, we, we need personally to come through the, the shouts and the joy and the rejoice, and we need to come to a place where, where we see Jesus' tears and, and can be in line with them and understand what's going on here. So, so think, think with me on this and put your heart in front of God and consider what this is about. Here's the first observation. The heart of God sorrows as he sees the destruction of people. The heart of God sorrows as he sees the destruction of people. Verse 41 says, as we saw, he's drawing near to the city and he, and he sees and he takes it in. He, he's not catching a glimpse of it the first time. He's been riding down this hill. He's been, the city's been laid before him, but he, he sees it. Not just the wall and the buildings, but the people who are the city. And he takes it in and he weeps over the city. A word used for lamenting the dead. For Weeping in some grievous situation like death. It's more than just a little moisture in his eye or a single solitary tear kind of running down his cheek. Jesus is actively grieving, crying in sorrow. And while he's crying, he's saying something, explaining the situation, the source of his sadness. Verse 42, oh, if only you knew. If only you right now knew what actually makes for peace. You yourselves, he's putting the emphasis on them right there because they are, right in that moment, they are in such a unique spot in history. You yourselves uniquely have a golden opportunity right in front of your eyes to receive peace from God. Here it is. It's right, I'm standing right in front of you. And you don't see it. You don't understand what peace is. You don't understand who I am. And the, so the window of opportunity is closing these things are now hidden from your eyes and what will the people see instead judgment and destruction that's what they'll know because they did not know the time of their visitation that's verse 44 the time when God visits them when God drew near to present to offer to them to visit upon them peace they missed that so instead he's going to visit upon them destruction This statement from Jesus resembles much of what we've seen in Luke already, even just in the last passage, in fact. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord from up above. Sent by God. That's God's visiting. Him, him drawing near to lay out an offer for peace. Peace in heaven. They said before. We elaborate on this last time we were here. God made peaceable. God made to be at peace satisfied because in Christ sin is punished and all who are who are covered by Christ there is no condemnation on them but instead there is just peace there is a God who is peaceable towards people because Christ has stepped in between made peace in heaven that's the offer and it's missed by people right in this moment they don't get that it's missed by people even today the world still does not see this and remains at odds with God not 
separated from the wrath of God by Jesus, but Jesus not grasped and so still remaining directly under the wrath of God. That's where people are. That's what he's getting at. That's, that's all familiar, and it's important that we restate it here. And in fact, we'll come to it a little bit more later. But right at this moment here, our focus is not quite on those truths. What we get here in the first point is that Jesus is restating those truths through tears. He's weeping. These truths are not just truths. All the things about peace and Jesus and, and God made peaceable with man and wrath, that's not, not just doctrine. Stuff to know, write down. Things that are going to come about one day. It is that, but not just that. Nor are they things that are going to happen thankfully, happily. Something to celebrate or take delight in. These things, they are all true and they are all coming and it is all heartbreaking. It's the source of Jesus' sorrow. He weeps over a rejoicing people who are about to perish because they've missed the offer of peace. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God sorrowed over this. And do you realize this about God? Do you realize this about God, how he views judgment and how he views destruction, the loss of people? This God, the, the one true God, the only God who is, we're not just talking about the God of the Bible, we're talking about the God, the only God who is. He made human beings. He made people. He made the big category of human, and he made individual people. And in making people, he put something unique and valuable into humanity and into each individual person. God, who made people alone, made people only like this, he put into them, he made them in the image of himself. Which makes us different than all the rest of the creation. He freely so, wisely so, powerfully so, made amongst all the creatures and in all the creation, made ones, a type and individual ones, who bear the image of God, which is a big subject, but we could sum it up by saying, made a unique ability for us to resemble him and relate to him. And every human relationship that you've ever had is so that you can get something about, some, some vague idea about what it was like, what God meant, what God intended, and what it could be. Something like every human that you've deeply connected to and, and passionately loved and, and relied on and hoped and entrusted and, and found life from, that's just a little taste of what God made to be the way between people and himself, made in his image, able to relate to, able to know, able to commune with him, different than all the animals, different than the rocks, different than the trees. 
He made people, and so therefore then he loves people uniquely. He cares for people uniquely. He is kind to people, all of us, all people, all people. And he does not relish the thought of people like this perishing. He is, in fact, slow to anger and full of steadfast love. Moved by his own desire then to, to have this people and seeing what has happened to us, he then made a way for there to be peace between rebels like us and him. And he visited upon people then extended to us then an offer of peace, a peace that was made by him, not by us. He didn't say, make peace and come back to me when you've done that. He made peace. And he wants people to hear about that and to find it and to take it and to receive it, to be redeemed, healed. He's patient and merciful and full of compassion. Forever? No. That's kind of the point here. Judgment comes. And the just judge will bring it in the right time and in the right way. He, he does not have to be coerced or arm twisted and doing what's right and just. He's, he is complex. So is he grieved? Yes. But is he, is he certainly willing to do justice? Yes. Both those things. He is emotionally complex. Indeed. He will do justice. But the point here is it is important that we place right next to, he will do justice, that we place right next to that, this truth, right next to the words of judgment even, right next to the words like wrath, right next to words like condemnation, next to words like destruction, next to hell, next to eternal torment. The point is that we have to place right next to that Sorrow and grief and tears and love and compassion and mercy and desire. Both. Complex, indeed. True, indeed. Look. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's a, that's a quote. That God said that himself. It is really common for people to hear in the world today. It's really common for people to hear words like the ones I was just saying concepts of judgment and destruction and get the impression that God is some sort of sadist. That he takes delight in hurting people. That he's mean-spirited and harsh and severe and happily so. And he's a really short fuse and he's eager to get people who offend him and he's really easily offended. God of many people's imaginations, especially when you hear words like the ones I just said, hell, eternal judgment, condemnation, put all that together and they come up with a God who is actually much more like Satan, who lives to kill and steal and destroy. That is not the God of the Bible. And the tears of Jesus here make that clear. The judgment of people and justice against people comes through the tears of God, not through the glee of God. 
He is a just judge and a weeping judge too. If you see him like that, if you, if you can see the judge like that, just and weeping also, then you realize that he is a judge of love and concern for you. For human beings in general and for you in particular. So note this about God and his character. You can only get to hell. If, if you end up in hell, you can only get to hell after wading through and on past Christ's blood. After being showered with Christ's tears. After pushing away his outstretched hand and plugging your ears against his call to you. Why will you perish? Turn and live. That's the only way you get to hell. Plugging your ears, pushing away his hands, walking through the tears and through the blood. That's the posture of God. It's important for the world to see this. This is the God who is. A God you need not run from or shake your fist at, but instead can turn to and say, happily and safely surrender to him. Help. He invites you to come and find rest and to find life in him and to find peace with him. And his tears, if you'll see his tears and see his sorrow, you will see that he can be trusted. He can be safely surrendered to. He cares about you and he calls to you and he will save you if you come. The world needs to see that. Christian. Does the world see that weeping in us as we contemplate the destruction of people? Because sometimes the impression that God is eager to destroy and is delighted in his wrath against humans, sometimes that impression comes from us. For a bunch of people in the world today, the only contact they have with Christianity are Christians. And so we might wonder if they got that impression about God from the Christians around them. The impression that when we talk about how people are going to burn, ever heard that or used that? going to burn. It's all going to burn. People are going to burn. Or they hear people say, hey, you got to flip or fry. Ever heard that? What a way to talk about this. What a way to talk about this. You got to either flip or fry. You got to repent or you'll burn. Oh my goodness. I didn't make that up. I've heard that a bunch. Sometimes we as Christians, we bump into sin and suffer ourselves under it. We suffer from the sin out there, from depravity or wickedness. It faces us in some sort of persecution, whether it be something hard or, or simply just shaming or embarrassment. And we can start to look forward eagerly, not just to God's deliverance of us, but God's judgment of them. 
oh, the day when he comes and puts an end to that creeps up in us sometimes. And sometimes that creeps up in us in situations that are hard or challenging emotionally, personally, yes. But we see Jesus here revealing to us the heart of God. And since he's also the perfect man, he is showing us the heart, the proper right heart of man. This is what mature humanity looks like. This is what Christ-like humanity looks like. It mourns as it contemplates the destruction of people. Now, having pushed that way, I need to answer a question that may come to mind. And it goes like this. Really? Am I supposed to be like that? Always? I mean, I can see it sometimes, I guess, but always? Because I can also remember Jesus blasting some people. So yes, he's weeping here, but like chapter 11, for instance, woe to you, woe to you, again and again and again. That's Jesus. Tears there. That's hard. That's this. That's confrontation. That's accusation. That's condemnation. Woe is a statement of condemnation. So I remember that about Jesus, too. Why shouldn't I be like that? And frankly, sometimes I kind of like that. Particularly when I'm watching the news or hearing about the latest Supreme Court decision or seeing my next-door neighbor do, I kind of like that one a little bit more. Why can't I be that sometimes? Jesus was like that, too. Come on. Okay, true. But notice carefully the context and especially the audience when Jesus was like that context and especially the audience his audience for such confrontation such harshness look you'll see oh so often religious leaders not always official religious leaders but very often official religious leaders scribes and pharisees woe to you scribes and pharisees lawyers and pharisees woe to you scribes very often it's official leaders People who themselves are willfully, knowingly, blindly turning away, willfully, knowingly rejecting, and, and critical here, stepping in to block other people too. Working hard to block or mislead or hassle or deceive the rest of the people to keep them from seeing and considering Jesus. Hard confrontation comes up in that kind of a context with those kinds of people. Others being deceived, others being led, led astray, others being blocked, others being hurt, not just yourself. So do you ever find that? Maybe, yeah. Maybe. So I can't say there's never any context, never any context for woe to you. Jesus can hold on to the complexity of woe to you, judgment, tears, and sorrow much better than we can. We tend to tip one way or the other, and we, we like the idea of vengeance. So be very careful. 
be very careful and recognize that the mass of time when Jesus interacts with people in the Bible and the great mass of time when you interact with people in the world, you will be dealing with people who are like blind sheep without a shepherd, just grasping for life in whatever way seems reasonable. This is where the world lives. It does not know. It's blown by the wind back and forth. It seems like this seems reasonable, so this becomes the, 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 the culture of the day. This becomes what people do. This becomes what people say. It becomes what people believe until something changes. A new talk show comes along. A new law passes. And then everybody seems to think that this is the way life is. And back and forth it blows because the world is lost. Harassed and helpless sheep who have no shepherd. It does not know who Jesus is and does not know that God has visited and does not know what makes for peace. They oppose him in blindness, and so they will oppose us, certainly. But we are to, Jesus has said repeatedly in this gospel, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and in humble, life-laid-down, compassionate love, show and speak and serve and witness to them. We need to think of people like that. It is very hard to be an effective witness without love, and it is very hard to love people that, frankly, you want to see burn in hell. Do you feel the disconnect there? I don't give a rip about you, and when I think about you, I'd rather you burn in hell, but let me tell you about the love and mercy of God. Do you see that? The world will see that. People feel that. To weep for the world that faces destruction, like Jesus does, is to be a mature Christian, a real human. It's to see what's really going on and what is coming. And to see that all around us, all that's going on is vain misunderstanding of the world's religions and the world's celebration and the world's assurance of its deliverance and its pending peace. It is all a great and tragic mistake. Let me get specific about this. We, we have, how much hand-wringing has been done by Christians in recent months and last year about all the, the gay marriage stuff? How much anger has been spilled by Christians over that? Is it right? No, of course not. But you see, the world's blowing back and forth. The world thinks, this is where, this is the argument, this is where we will find our significance. If you will let us marry, and you will let us call each other man, husband, wife, rather than partner, then we will, we will find rest, we will be at hope. No. That's not where it's found, and we know that. We were in heterosexual marriages, because doesn't that doesn't work for us either. <laughs> no, that's not where life is found. So let them go that way. I'm not, I'm not trying to speak about legalities, and I'm just saying emotionally, in the, in the discussions over the water cooler, let them go that way and, and say, Good luck. I, I am not trying to speak to the political issues here. 
and saying, given that that's happened, our it's a vast misunderstanding of where life is found. To befriend somebody and say, that's not where, that's, feel free, have at it, it won't work. And when they're blown back this way in a few years, that won't work either. The world thinks, celebrates, we have finally got there, we have finally arrived, we have been delivered, we will find peace. And that's not it. It doesn't know what makes for peace. Again, for like the fifth time, I am not trying to say anything about the politics of all that and what the law should be. I'm talking about at the water cooler level as you're talking to somebody, given that this has happened, angst and combativeness is not necessary and not productive. You know something they don't know. So believe it. And live in it. There's no life there. You also know that God's wrath remains on the world. And that is a dreadful and sorrowful thing. And it's very important that you see Jesus like this in this passage so that you will be shaped by it. It's very hard for us to be, to be like this, to be shaped by this. I understand because those things that are around us and that are wrong, they, they grate on us because we are new creations. And sometimes they actually afflict us, and sometimes they afflict us very painfully. So uh, how do we deal with that? Well, we do what Jesus is doing here, not stated, but what First Peter tells us he's doing here. He's entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I need not sort out the judgment because someone else will. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly, which means that that judge will take care of us and that judge will take care of justice. And he will take care of justice. Which takes us to the second point. Destruction is coming to all who miss Christ. Destruction is coming to all who miss Christ. And the judgment foreseen, it is one of total devastation, sobering, total loss. He puts it here in the language of an ancient attack on a city and a successful siege. Verse 43, the days are coming when an enemy will come against this people, against Jerusalem, against the city. Verse 44, tear you down, cast you to the ground, you and your children, and they will physically tear down the structures of the city too, not leaving one stone upon another. So he's talking here, they're going to raise, that is, take it all to the ground. They're going to raise the people and they're going to raise the buildings. Flattened. Totally. All of the inhabitants gone, dead. And the city gone. 
just like happened some six centuries before when Jerusalem was captured and the nation was carried off into exile as a judgment against the people. Jesus is talking about something that's going to actually come to pass here in a couple of decades. Not too long after this, it actually happens again. Cities judged and destroyed. But just like the real issue of peace is not about Rome, the real issue of judgment is not about Rome. What's going on here is, is a physical discussion about what's physically going to happen, but as so often is the case in the Bible, the physical is picturing, modeling, is a type of the spiritual. This is so often the case with the major events of the Bible. Think, you can think of not just the judgment of Jerusalem back some six centuries before, but you can go further back than that and think of the judgment of Egypt when God brought the people out. He judged the Egyptian gods one by one by one by one by destroying the country. And the people then who, who did not believe in him wandered through the desert and they all died in the desert. They physically died, they physically perished because of a spiritual unbelief. And he judged the people who he wiped out of the land. He judged them in the physical way for their spiritual unbelief. And he judged Jerusalem, and he's going to judge Jerusalem again. He's always talking about the physical as a way of showing the spiritual. So when we see this, when we see calamity, when we see death, we are to think about and remember, oh, death comes from sin. And when he talks about great, big, catastrophic death, we're to, we're to think about and make the connection, oh, yeah, catastrophic judgment. That reminds me of catastrophic judgment. That's what he's getting at. So this is going to happen in Jerusalem one day physically, in time and in space. And it is a foreshadowing of the destruction that's coming to all who, like them, miss the time of visitation from God. Who miss, who do not know what God has provided to make for peace. If you miss that, what's left? Tragically, tearfully, heartbreakingly, certainly, totally, destruction. Scraped to the ground with nothing left sort of destruction. No second chance sort of destruction. That's what's coming to those who miss Christ. Oh my. That is sobering. I can move through it at, at some speed and, and reiterate it. It's familiar to many of our ears. You know it. It's doctrine. It's, it's but oh my. If you understand that, and put it right next to real people that you know. Loved ones. Maybe even you yourself if you don't know Christ. If you understand that and then put it right next to real people, move it out of the theoretical doctrine realm and into real life, real people, me, It produces sorrow because it is so tragic and final. 
both in what the destruction is and in what, what's missed. What is it? It is the everlasting, full wrath of God on you in hell forever. The loss of all that is good in the abundance of terror and anger and sorrow forever. Jesus described it earlier as the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, it is sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow and gnashing of teeth. It is anger and frustration and, and uh, forever under the wrath of God. It is awful. For what comes and for what is lost, because of the contrasting side of that, the opposite of the weeping and gnashing of teeth is the inside is the feast of joy. It is the joy of a great party with God Himself in perfect delight forever and ever and ever. These are profoundly important realities that are at stake here. There's nothing more important in all of the world. Give this most careful thought. As, as we think about it, and as soon as you, first point, you, you see the, the sorrow of Jesus, and we emphasize that and point it out and what it tells us, the important truths about the heart of God, and then you give careful thought to this sobering destruction, some may come to a question, if that's heartbreaking to God, why doesn't he just not do it? Why doesn't he just not judge, not destroy? That would be the easy way out of this dilemma, wouldn't it? And in fact, that seems most natural to many people because if, if on the one hand, a lot of people in the world think of God as angry and severe and harsh and ready to whack people, a whole bunch of other people in the world are on the other side of things and think of God as all-loving. His first attribute is love and his second attribute is love and his third attribute is love. And in fact, all of his attributes is just love. And he is kind and perpetually understanding and forgiving. And did I mention loving? And that kind of God, they think, would never destroy people. Never. It makes no sense to talk about a God of love who is heartbroken and who is also wrathful. So the more clearly we talk about the sorrow and the heartbreak of God and the, and the more we lean on that and, and see it and, and soak in it and then deal with this destruction of people, the more clearly we talk about that and think about that, the more we have to face this question, why is there destruction at all? Why not just overlook it and love people? We've got to think about that. Initially, first, it is important to note that both of those realities, they both 
the sorrow of God, the heartbreak of God that shows us the love and compassion and concern of God and the justice, the judgment of God, they both are in this passage and are in fact inseparably tied together in this passage. If there was no destruction coming, Jesus would not be crying. He's weeping because of this reality. So any solution that says one or the other is wrong. The fact of the pending judgment is why there are tears. Both are there. Both are true. But, but why? Because I don't know where you're coming from. This may be very different from how you've thought or what you've been told before. But because it's important to think about while God is indeed a God of love who loves people, we need to be clear about something very important that is very often overlooked by the people of the world, by human beings. But it's very important because it lies at the foundation of who God is and of what's going on here and of why there is judgment. It's this. Human beings are not God's central reason for being. Human beings, people, are not God's central focus. God and all of the creation, everything that has been made, it is not first and foremost about people. This is all about God. All of the creation is from God. All the creation exists through God. That is, he made it and he continues to sustain it. And all of the creation is about him. It is for him, from him and through him and to him are all things. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God is supreme. God is the focus of God. Are people prized and precious to God, loved by Him? Absolutely. Indeed. Uniquely so, made in His image, separate and different from all the rest of the creation. People, human beings, are special and unique, prized, precious, beloved. Deeply so, and secondarily so. Which makes perfect sense as soon as you remember the fact that we didn't used to exist. Only God did. As soon as you remember that, God's the only one eternal. We aren't the reason he exists. The other way around. He is the reason for our existence. It's all about Him. God is supreme. And God is righteous, pure, just, sinless, holy love. All those things together. I, I wrote that sentence very carefully. He is not one who does righteous things. 
He is not one who does pure things. He is not one who loves. He is those words. He is those things. He is righteousness. He is purity. He is love. And God is determined to show all of this, this nature of his, this righteous and pure and just and sinless and holy love. He is determined to show all of that wide, great, glorious goodness. To show himself, to display all that he is. Not just what he does, who he is. He is like a great spring bubbling up, running down a hill, becoming a stream and becoming a river. He is determined. He, he cannot be contained. He's, he's bubbling up and running, and he wants that whole thing to spread and cover all of the creation. That's why he made that this spring would flood. It would gush forth, pour out and display what's, what's down there beneath in the ground. What's there? It comes up and runs out. All of God poured out and displayed and seen and marveled at and praised and enjoyed. That's why he created. That is his purpose in creation. That is his purpose in creating us. To display himself, to pour himself out and show himself to our delight and for his glory. And he will have his way. That will, it must happen, given that he is so good. He will make a kingdom of purity and love and goodness and justice and wisdom. A world without sin and without evil. A world without sinners, without evil ones, without fools without the unjust, without the unloving, without the hateful, without the in, impure ones. In his great love, he is determined to give to people a world that is good and right, in which people can be safe and can thrive and can know full joy and safe communion with him and with each other. He will not allow the spring to be plugged up and the river to run dry, but he will unplug it and cause it to run. And that means all opposition will be cast down, cut off, laid low. In his goodness, he is determined to pour himself out and to give to people living water that is unpolluted and unstained, unadulterated, holy. And so now a peace is offered. So we got both these things here. We got the sorrow of God over, over judgment. We got the reality of judgment. And now a peace is offered. Come to this kingdom. Come and drink of this water. Come and find this God. And it's laid in front of us and, and we're called to it and it's shown to us and displayed to us in light of something else is also coming. There's an urgency to the moment. How long? I have no idea, but there is an urgency to the moment. There's an offer on the table. But a cleansing judgment is coming to remove all who oppose him in the end. 
And in this time now, God has spent thousands of years patiently, graciously holding out the offer. Here it is laid right before you. Do you see it? Do you know what makes for peace? He holds it out to you, even to you. And he does not demand that you make peace. So do not demand that he make peace in another way. He has made a peace that works. He has held out in front of you, I sorrow over judgment, but judgment is real. And so he has delivered the man of sorrows and condemned him and judged him in your place that you might find life. Come. Believe and live. There is no added burden here. There is no work here. There is simply a receiving of what he has done to make peace. A humbling of, of your own self beneath his hand. And you see him teary-eyed teary -eyed and offering peace. You know you can trust him and believe him. Here it is. Live. Are you missing him? Have you ever turned to him? Have you ever given him your attention like the crowd does here? If not, you're missing him. But a number of people in, in the world today, a number of us, have, have in fact turned to him and drawn near to him. And then we have to ask, why? What have you come to him for? You give him your attention. What, what do you think the problem is that he's addressing? What do, what do, you, what do you come to him for? Deal with Rome for me, put Roman quotes. Deal with Rome for me, please. That's why I'm here. Do you see that the biggest problem is peace with God? That's what he's come to deal with. If you've not come to him for that, perhaps you're missing him. And if you find that off-putting and offensive, that's the issue. just found the issue in your own heart. You're not interested in peace with God. I plead with you, see, this is the issue of life, peace with God, and God has visited to make it happen, to make it possible for you. Turn to him and live. And Christian, Do you see how glorious it is that God is determined to make a kingdom that is pure in which he is poured out for you? And then God opened your eyes that you would see it. And God brought you up to the water and gave you to drink of it forever, and will cleanse the fountain and make it run and cover all the earth for your joy forever and ever and ever. Do you see that? That is a glorious and good God for you. You can put your life at, at his feet and trust him. And seeing that glorious thing that by grace alone he has given to you, he then calls you to turn and to follow him into the harvest in this world with people who don't see it yet. Who are blind and harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Will you love them and lay down your lives 
for the sake of his name in them. That's what he calls you to. I don't know anything more important than this. Or anything more sweet. To see, a, to see a God who so cares, who so cares for his own glory and so cares for people and wants to put those things together and then has opened my eyes to see it, that puts me in a spot of thankfulness. May it put you also in a spot of thankfulness, in a spot of surrendered trust. It would be great glory to him and great joy for you. Let me pray toward that end. Let's pray. God, help us. The ten different places that we're in, would you help us with all of them? Frustrated and afraid, thankful and delighted, confused, bored. We're in a lot of different places right now. So Spirit of God, will you draw near and help us? Will you draw us on, encourage us in whatever ways are necessary right now? Would you save? Would you sanctify? Would you build your church? Would you honor the name of the Son? Have your way here with us, Holy Spirit. Lift up Jesus, that God may be all in all. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.